the moment you reframe it saying, hey, I know I got it wrong. Let me figure out how I got it wrong. Let me be curious to identify what part of this wasn't quite to my, my assumptions. Then I can take action and then the magic happens. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, just to be curious with us. When I first got started on this curiosity gig, I thought I was going to do consulting and facilitation work built around curiosity. My website still carries that imprint right there on the homepage, Choose to be Curious, Facilitating Conversations and Transformation. Now, I would say that is indeed what I'm doing even still, but the original plan, it changed. What hasn't changed is my appreciation for the art and craft of facilitation. Like so much that's a beauty to behold, good facilitation is a lot harder than it looks. I have known and loved some truly gifted facilitators in my time. People who really embody the essence of facilitation, of making things easier for the rest of us, connecting us with ourselves, one another, paths forward. And then one day, someone who was new to me reached out through LinkedIn and reminded me what a great curiosity topic facilitation really is. We had interesting overlaps, this person and I, but it wasn't until I read his book that I began to understand what a philosophically kindred spirit he might be. Andres Marquez Lara is founder and CEO of You Facilitate, a global platform for matching facilitators with folks who need them, industry sector agnostic. As they put it, You Facilitate helps leaders deal with the messy human stuff that gets in the way of teams achieving their greatest potential. With help from ChatGPT, he's recently written a book called Facilitating Leadership, A Quick and Easy Guide to Leading with Brain, Heart, and Soul, built around the framework of the five-day leadership course he teaches at Georgetown. His final project for those students in the class and for those reading the book is to pose one big question. What does it take to lead in the 21st century? Spoiler alert, his answer is facilitation. He describes his book as an appetizer plate of facilitation ideas and frameworks, and indeed that's exactly what it is. One old favorite framework after another. But I stopped cold in my proverbial tracks when I got to Otto Scharmer and Theory U. I don't often encounter Theory U outside its own circles, but the particular approach to personal business and systems transformation had a huge impact on what changed for me and my idea about how I would work with curiosity. It was really Theory U's idea of 0.8 prototyping that was so pivotal. The idea is you know you're not quite ready. It's not even version 1.0, just 0.8. It's not fully baked, but you put it out there anyway. The whole point is not to get hung up on whether you've figured everything out. You just try. And then you pay attention to what works, what doesn't. Ask others what works and what doesn't. Figure out how to incorporate what you're learning. Integrate, iterate, repeat. It was and is one of my first and favorite 
curiosity practices. But more importantly, it's how I ended up on the air. I'd never done radio, didn't know a thing about audio production or podcasting, was a total neophyte with chasing and landing guests, interviewing, any of it. But I got this idea that this was the way I wanted to really engage with curiosity. I wanted to have lots of conversations with lots of different people. I had this half-baked idea and I put it out there in all its lumpy rawness. And well, here we all are. All of which is to say, when I realized Andres Marquez Lara had Theory U in his toolkit, I was hooked. And I'm delighted he's joining me today. So welcome, Andres. Thank you so much, Lynn. I'm really, really happy to be here. And I love hearing a little more about the, the thinking that led to our conversation today. Yeah. Well, you know, as I say, it was why when you sort of surfaced and, you know, we had our initial conversation and then I became more familiar with your work, I was like, oh, okay. I want to spend more time talking with this guy. And I just want to say, I want to Let's just buy your premise about facilitation. And then I just want to work backwards from there. Does that that work? That that sounds so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) That's not usually the approach I get when I'm engaging potential partners and clients. So thank you. (laughs) And I'm, I'm buying it because I think of it as basically embodying a series of curiosity practices. That's really what facilitation is, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and as I was looking at your work and I thought, there are a couple of these that really pop out at me. And I kind of wanted to start there and I'll invite you to, you know, if you feel like I missed something, you should speak up. But, but I want to start first with prototyping. Yes. Because it got me here, but I also think it got you here. Oh, 100%. As you're talking about your intro and prototyping, I was like, yes, because I feel that is what we need to do to discover. To mm-hmm. be, to, because again, to me, it's about discovering what the world has in store for us. And we won't know that unless we do something about it, unless we take action. You know, And for far too long, our entire education system is based on knowledge. We need to right. know before we take action, right? And in this complex world, we actually have to flip that and we have to probe then to sense and to respond. This is from the Kinefin framework that Dave Snowden talks about. That small shift of probing, then sensing, then that is something that I feel is all about prototyping. And I would not be talking to you had I not decided to, hey, I have this, this desire, interest to see, hey, can I use performance and theater to build connection? Can I facilitate environments of growth and development through interaction? And had I not tried, had I not taken a leap, I wouldn't have learned and kind of followed the rabbit hole through the different paths that it took me on. (laughs) The way I talk about it is, you know, I've now facilitated hundreds of events with thousands of people for the past 12 years or so. And every workshop that I do is a prototype because I build it. I mean, one of the quotes, I I forgot who says it, but it's a build it as if you're right, test it as if you're wrong. Oh, I like that. You know, I go into an event building, thinking, designing something with talking to, to clients, to partners, to stakeholders, co-creating with them. And I build it as best as I possibly can. And I know I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. I know there are parts <laughs> of it that it just, because of my blind spots, because of the way, whatever, it's not going to be 100% right because it can't be because it's not up to me. Because the moment you're facilitating, now you're live, the group is going to do what it's going to do. Right. And so then what happens is the, the group will respond and then you react. 
And then I learned, oh, this is the way that I shouldn't do it. Let me think of other ones. That's um, the whole point, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it, and I think this is why it's, you know, I love the work of Amy, uh, Amy Edmondson at Harvard. She's really kind of reframing how we talk about failure. Because I think a lot of people are afraid to prototype because then they're going to fail. But lo and behold, like if we're actually, if we're not failing, if we're not learning in the process of when we think are not happening as we, as we think they should be, then we're not learning. So the whole point of like prototyping is to learn. Again, that's why you build it as if you're right, but you assume you got it wrong and then you're learning to iterate. And that, by the way, takes so much pressure away from trying to get it right. Yes. Right? Like I don't have to get it right in the first go because I think sometimes people feel, and I have felt that in the past as a recovering professionist, you know, as a recovering professionist, I get crippling anxiety to get it right. And that sometimes would keep me from even taking a first step. Yeah. But the moment you reframe it saying, hey, I know I got it wrong. Let me figure out how I got it wrong. Let me be curious to identify what part of this wasn't quite to my, my assumptions. Then I can take action. And then the magic happens because this is all about magic. And when you're facilitating, things happen that you really, that are emergent that you can't plan for that often are just so much better than, than what it is. So, I mean, and sometimes the magic is raw and doesn't quite feel as what you want it to, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's what you need to happen. Because when you're facilitating, I always say you're, it's like playing 3D chess. You know, you, you have to be aware of like what you're feeling, like your own things. You have to be aware of what's happening between people. You have to be aware of what's happening in the room, the agenda. So I'm mindful of time, of the energy, of all these things that are happening. And then you have to make a choice, right? And your choice will sometimes or often not be the right one, but you just have to make a choice regardless. And I learned also how my own anxiety to be perceived in certain ways limits my curiosity of other people. As I feel my anxiety peak and I'm able to notice that, I can then ask more questions before taking a quick reaction or, or making assumptions about that. In the moment when you're facilitating, you, it's, a, it's a second reaction. Like it just you're feeling it and you have to respond. And the more self-awareness you gain the more you can make different choices in those moments. Well, I love this kind of meta practice that you've surfaced there of flagging, where am I? Where's the room? You know, where's the larger context on this? Uh, anxiety. Ooh, ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, oh, okay. Because it's not our instinct, right? Our instinct no. is to get tight. Yep. So that's actually a great segue because another one of the practices that you talk a lot about is improv. Yeah, because again, improv is a form of prototyping, right? Because when oh, you're on yeah. the when you're you're on a stage and you're told, okay, Lynn, you and I are in in a boat fishing, and then we start talking, we're going to be creating a script yeah. that's never been done before. And we're going to learn based on each other's reactions, like things about ourselves, about the process, etc. So that's why I mean it's it's an it's an embodied prototyping, which is why it's so powerful. And the thing is, at least the way I tend to think about uh, improv and performance, which is inspired by uh, a group in New York called the East Side Institute, where I've done a lot of my training and I'm an associate. Uh, the idea is that life is an improvised performance. Yeah. We all have social scripts, you know, depending on our country of origin, where we were born, our gender, our race, you name it. We are given a, a script that society, you know, judges one way or the other. And these scripts can bring us together or they can pull us apart. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's one of the things that if we're able, if we buy into that, right? And it's all about stories. If, if we buy into that story and we believe that story, then we can begin to recognize how these scripts 
actually are limiting my development and my growth. For example, as a young man, my script was you can't be emotional. You know, as a, you can't share your feelings. You can't cry easily because that means that you are homosexual. It means you're gay. It means that you're not manly or whatever it is. You know, I was raised in Venezuela in the early, the early 80s and 90s and a very homophobic culture, right? That script, uh, which, you know, many of my peers, colleagues and, and mentors, people are older than me, really lived up to like that cripples men. <laughs> you know, humans yeah. are emotional beings, uh, you know, and we have been socialized that some genders express emotions one way and others other ways. But what if on the stage of improv, on the stage of life, we were to play and practice with new ways of performing our emotions? And so I basically, in when, I, when we facilitate, we try to kind of have that perspective, that lens, when somebody takes on a role, you know, when you're facilitating, you have perhaps a person who always likes to answer the question or always is the first one to go and like, they're performing a role. Right. And, you know, you then have to sense like, how is that, how's the group responding to that? And how are other people respond? Like, you know, are their roles is to be more in the back end or they want to be critical. So when you have that perspective as seeing it as a role, as a performance, you can then invite people to say, hey, have, let's, let's try this performance. You know, can you say that same thing, but perhaps play a different role? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I like it. I like it. You know, one of the things you talk about in your book also is the playfulness yes. of improv. And I think we don't often think of leadership as playful. And uh, we don't often think of the workplace as a playful place. Yep. But this doing things to discover just for the sake of doing it in this playful way, as opposed to getting it right. Yes. I was really struck by that. Do you want to elaborate on that? I just thought that was a, I was really grateful that you kind of called that up. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes again from, from my experience of the fact that, you know, there's this, when we play, we discover things, mm -hmm. right? We're able to things to emerge, but when the stakes are high, we feel we can't play. Right. When people's lives are at risk when the, the, the finances of the company, whatever, like we can't be playful. We have to be serious. And I get that. Like there's moments, of course, you know, to be thoughtful, analytical and not be playful. But there's so many other contexts leading up to that moment where play and playfulness can actually allow us to discover new things. Because, again, it's all about your play is nonlinear. We're not playing to achieve a particular objective, at least in the play that I'm thinking about. You know, it's more about like. What can we discover? What, what, let's be curious and see if we engage with this, what can we discover that we can then use our analytical brain to then connect to something else? Yeah. But if we don't even allow ourselves to have a, a space to play or discover, we're missing out on opportunities. And again, I think if you see facilitation and you try to infuse this playfulness, you're going to help a group discover things that they can then use in other ways. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that that I think of with that is that people hold things more lightly when they're playing. Yes. Yeah. You know, you don't have these death grips on things, yes. right? So you're willing to like, Oh, let me try it. Let me pass it on. I mean, maybe that comes back, you know, again, to this whole, the point of the improv is that you're, you're sort of, you're following this thread now, but somebody may take you someplace else. And, yeah. and part of the compact, right. Is that you follow that lead. Yeah. So you have to let go of things. And, and the thing is, the reason we hang on to things so tightly is because we make it part of our identity. Yeah. You know, and if, you know, if, if this idea that, or this project is like something I'm really hanging on to, like, you know, again, for me, one of the identities that I've been trying to unpack in my therapy, I've been in therapy now for two decades and I recommend for, for any budding facilitator or practicing facilitator, one of the best practices to just is go to therapy, get a coach, have a space in your life 
where you can reflect on your scripts, your assumptions, your triggers, your biases, because when you're facilitating, somebody is going to poke their finger on that. And the worst thing you can do is react in a way instead yeah. of making a choice, Yeah. right? And if it happens, because it happens to all of us, then we learn and we, we're curious about our reaction, right? But I say this because I think our identity, the identity I've been, you know, the, the identity of the provider, of, of, of being the one who, who has the answers, et cetera. I'm doing a lot of work in my therapy to kind of let go of some of that because that perhaps keeps me from seeing things. And again, I feel if we bring some playfulness to it, we're gonna, we can play and we can perform as whatever we want it to be. And then in the process, we can discover things. So it's about playfulness allows us to play with other identities and other roles that perhaps otherwise we wouldn't allow ourselves to be, yeah. right? And it doesn't mean that we're going to be that person. We can't ever be you know, somebody else, but we can imagine and use our imagination and try to discover things in that. Right. And and to begin to think about that, oh, I hadn't really thought about, but if I'm in this role, then I would be interested in X. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you spoke a moment ago about therapy creating a space, that's actually the third... That's actually the third curiosity practice I wanted to talk about, which is this idea of space. Mm. And you, you, you have a nice line in your book about facilitation, creating space where our soul, feelings, ideas, and relationships can catch up to us. Yes. Which is beautiful. I mm-hmm. love that. And then you talk also about silence as spaciousness. Mm-hmm. I just want to have you expand on the value of space as a facilitation practice, as a curiosity practice. Yeah. So, so the, I'll start with the story that gave me that insight, which I write in the book about this a story I heard from my, my mentor, Hector Arisizabal, who's a Colombian therapist, a psychodramatist, activist. He's doing some beautiful work in Colombia, reuniting uh, people that have been affected by the conflict that's been going on for, uh, with the FARC. And, and he had a story in a workshop that we went to together where it says there was this anthropologist that was following a, a tribe in the Amazon and they would walk for basically three days straight, this nomad tribe, and then they would just stop and pause for two days. And then they would, without any explanation, they would just pick up again and start moving for another three days. And then they would stop and sit down. And then one day the anthropologist approached the chief and said, hey, chief, I've been noticing, I've been working, seeing you and following you all now for a few months. Like, and I see this pattern, but I can't quite figure out why are you stopping? Where, how do you choose to stop? Like, what's going on? And he, the chief said, well, we stop so our soul can catch up to us. Yeah. And it's like that, those is like so powerful because think of just our day-to-day lives. We're just constantly on the go, 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 go. Like our society creates a narrative that we always have to be in movement and action, et cetera. And what happens when we get brought in to facilitate an activity, a retreat, that's essentially the organization saying, we're going to pause. We're going to create space for us to intentionally think about X, Y, Z. Now, some uh, clients or partners may want to make it more productive and they'll want to just like, let's do more more intentional focus work on X, Y, Z. And because of our approach and philosophy, we will try to create as much spaciousness as possible while still being able to deliver on the objectives. But the thing is, you know, I my first book, which I never ended up writing, uh, but it was the idea is that facilitation is a modern day ritual, right? You know, essentially, when you come together as people, as a group, you are with an intention. It's a ritual. That's all you need. For a ritual, you just need intention and space. <laughs> and when we're facilitating, that's what we have. We have a clear intention and space. 
And if we are able to hold that space as it's emerging, we're going to connect with ourselves, with each other, with purpose, with with something greater. And again, I think that there's magic in that. And and if we're curious, we'll be able to discover things that we wouldn't have otherwise because it's all about emergence. Yeah, yeah. Well, and part of the part of what I like about it is that I think sometimes people think of curiosity as a very active state. Do 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 little squirrel. Do 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 do. You know, kind of busily doing lots of different things, yes. right? And um, and allowing an understanding of curiosity as actually not that, yeah. but as that slowing down and creating room and letting the quieter stuff synthesize or emerge or just wash past us so that yeah. we can notice things. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Well, and I think that's, you know, some of the great poets that just observe nature, you know, Mary mm -hmm. Oliver, you know, just like, we're just, just, just in nature, observing, creating space for things to emerge and you notice things because again, we, you know, we, if we choose to be curious, it's all about noticing but we need to stop and pause and make space to notice. <laughs> right, right, right. So those were three, what I think of as curiosity practices in, in facilitation that you know really spoke to me. Is there one that you think that comes to mind for you or that you just can't bear to have this conversation not include? Well, the one that comes to me, and, and we kind of touched on it, but I really want to make it explicit, is just the... The practice of just self-awareness, yeah. you know, of like, like all these things we're talking about start with us leading ourselves. It starts with us getting more insight as to who we are as people. And it starts with us being curious about our own reactions, because what will often happen is it, we're been, if we're socialized in Western society, you know, like, like when we have a reaction, we're going to judge it. It was good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be the first thing we're going to do. Yep. But we don't go past that. Right. We don't go like, oh, how curious. I got angry when my wife said this or the client did this and I got really you know, anxious about that. How interesting. I want to learn more. And just having that curiosity is so powerful. This quote I'm about to share, which is also in the book, it's been attributed to Viktor Frankl, Rollo May, but the quote goes by, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. In our space, a power to choose. And in our, in, in our power to choose, is our, it's our, all of our I'm butchering the quote. So we'll have to kind of get it right for your audience. But the whole premise is, is that essentially that we have the space between the stimulus and the response where we can actually, where everything happens. Yeah. And oftentimes we, that space is a second or that space is a millisecond. But to me is about the more awareness you gain, the more you can be in that space between the stimulus and the response. Right. So if you and, and, and again, it might feel like a second, but if you have this practice, you, that second can actually feel longer and you'll be able to react. You'll be able to choose a response versus reacting because mm -hmm. that's the difference. You know, when we are just reacting out of habit, we're going to we're not noticing. We're just reacting again. But what you want to is you want to really kind of come back to your capacity to choose to choose to respond to people based on that moment's situation, if you will. I love it. I love it. It also, I mean, way to bring it back to choose to be curious, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it, it comes, that I mean, that's, that's a foundation of, I mean, facilitation is all about choices. Yeah. Well, I want to invite you to make some choices uh, from some random choices that I'm going to make in my big okay. jar of wannabe analogies. Are you game for this? Okay. Yes, that's it. Okay. So here it is. This is my... Big jar, one of the analogies. 
and I have slips of paper in here. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever oops, is on these slips. Yours is sand. How is curiosity like sand? Mine is skyscraper. And I have one for the audience. So do you want to go or do you want me to go first? Um. Your choice. You're the host. I'll let you okay. choose. All right. So I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, how is curiosity like a skyscraper? Um, well, uh, a skyscraper is a, a construct that um, allows us to have a very different perspective on the world. Hmm. And I think that's what curiosity does too. So that's how Beautiful. curiosity is like a skyscraper. So how is curiosity like sand? What came for me is the image of the, like a sand clock, the sand just like building little uh, by little. Yeah. And so I think curiosity is like sand that can build. It starts like little, can be a little trickling, you know, but then, and it can feel insignificant, but as it builds, it can build these dunes that are just massive. And so there's the element of that. And then once it's this dune, like it inspires, it's a new jumping off point for something else. Nice. Nice. I love that. Beautiful. And audience, yours is smoke. How is curiosity like smoke? Let me know on social media. Hashtag analogy. Well, Andres, thank you so much for this. I knew this would be fun. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm really glad that we connected. And again, I think part of curiosity is also saying yes to the serendipities of life. And I think this where also social media in some way allows for these serendipitous connections. And, you know, how are we choosing to be curious about who we encounter and reach out to and have that, you know, bias towards action. So I'm glad that that LinkedIn message got to your inbox and that you were curious enough to learn more. And we connected here. So thank you for that. Indeed. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can share your smoke analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Andres Marquez Lara. Links to You Facilitate and his book on my website. Thanks to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. I guess the one thing I would just want to add, add or add or share or ask the audience of you was just to kind of, I think oftentimes facilitation is seen as, you know, an MC coming in to kind of just like, you know, be a host or hostess of something. And, you know, we have a bad press problem. People, again, perceive facilitation as like, it's a nice to have. It's kind of like a, a nice add on, but it's not necessary. And I'm hoping that, you know, and, and hopefully by downloading the book, which is free, we'll, we'll send you the link. But just I want to help people see facilitation as this practice uh, of curiosity that allows people to come together to deal with the messy human stuff. Right. This is the, the messy human stuff is what is preventing us, I believe, as a species, as a planet to address some of the bigger issues that we're facing. It's not the technology. We have the science, we have the tech. It's people coming together and not being able to agree on how to collaborate and how to work together. And so I'm hoping that when people think of facilitation, they'll see, oh, here's a practice, here's a methodology, here's a community of experts that have the skill set that can support groups in figuring things out on their own, but it's a process that you know can support that whole environment.